Hits. Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. With me, my name is Danny Yao and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. Pop, pop. <laughs> Casey, <laughs> Casey Atkins. Hello. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Insert catchphrase here. <laughs> uh, what we usually do is we, uh, we go through the number one singles throughout the 90s and we are currently up to the end of 1994. Tonight, actually, we will talk about five songs that will take us to the end of 1994. And we might as well just go straight into it. Our first song of tonight was number one for four weeks from the 17th of September 1994, and it's Kylie Minogue with Confide in Me. <laughs> Kylie Minogue, number one for four weeks, and I have to say, I'm kind of surprised it's taken us this long to talk about Kylie. About Kylie, yeah. But uh, why don't we start with you, Casey? Sure. Um, I really liked this at the time, kind of, it. I think what this song was doing and what it was trying to do totally worked on me at the time, which was Kylie trying to be a little bit more kind of... I don't know if indie's the word, but just a little bit more rock, um, and it worked, and I really liked it then. And I was expecting to like it more this week when I listened to it, and I remembered why I liked it at the time, but it didn't really do it. I guess I kind of saw through it a bit more this week. Um, I didn't hate it, but it wasn't what I, you know, it didn't bring back all of the love for it that I remember having. Hmm. Tim Byron, what about you? So, yeah, like Casey, I remember this being like a, big image makeover kind of thing. Like, um, you know, she was now a more mature adult Kylie. Like previously she'd sort of been like the sort of happy-go-lucky, I-should-be-so-lucky disco diva type. And um, and here she'd become more like Madonna of the time. Like Madonna's had a 1994 album um, that was produced by Nellie Hooper who'd worked with Nana Cherry and Bjork and Massive Attack and all people like that. And this was definitely trying to be, like, a bit like that. Mm. Like, it's got that kind of trip-hop kind of thing with the odd sort of instrumentation and the kind of syncopated rhythms and things like that. 
And so yeah, I was listening to it thinking, wow, that's not a bad Nana Cherry impression. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I liked it at the time. I liked the video clip where she was sort of doing the different sort of um, personas like the with a sort of call, call Kylie kind of stuff stuff on screen. And I was fascinated by that and thought that was cool at the time. Listening to it now, um, it's all right. It's it's not bad. It's it's nice enough. It's yeah, it's pretty good, um, but it doesn't sort of blow my mind or anything. It's it's a pretty good example of what it was at the time. Pretty good. That's about it. Tim <laughs> Coyle. Yeah, I think like the other guys, this this song confounded expectations a bit because Kylie Minogue is another one of those artists who fits into the sisters music category yeah. and therefore <clears throat> was persona non grata for me uh, up to this point and then hearing this song coming completely out of left field as far as what I expected of her style of music. Um, yeah, I found it so very, very interesting at the time and there's the film clip which is kind of catnip for teenage boys. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I did watch the clip today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there was that and that just made the whole Kylie is my sister's favourite artist thing even more awkward. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, a, a little different from the other two guys. I still really like it. Um, it. Interesting that Tim Byron mentioned Massive Attack because I think when I was writing notes down on this, Porter's Head was the uh, first thing okay. I, I put down and... Yeah, uh, that kind of stylistic approach is all over this. The the very there's a very Bond theme kind oh, of thing yeah, going yeah, on yeah. with yeah. the woozy strings and the the very sultry, seductive siren kind screen siren kind of um, approach she takes with the voice and in the lyrics. And I think it really it works really well. And it's that kind of that simple message of, um, yeah, kind of people's loneliness and vulnerabilities being exploited uh, with, regards to, with regards to sex and love. Uh, it's dealt with really well. Well, for me, yeah, I love this song when it came out. It's friggin' sexy as for <laughs> our age. It's very suggestive. I think about this time I figured out what those double O double five numbers were. Yes, double O double five. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of has that, and obviously, yes, totally unexpected for her. And yeah, I agree with a lot of things everyone said. The James Bond theme, this the great film clip. Um, yeah, and the sexiness, I think, is just yeah, it's the real thing. I mean, this is. Uh, I remember loving Locomotion, and I should be so lucky. Like I loved those songs to death, and and this is almost from a different artist, but it makes sense. In her progression, because I think we talked about George Michael and the similar thing where she basically, you know, you can't do more than two, three albums being that pop person and you've got to grow up at some point and you can either be GF4 or you can do this. And this was a pretty good, you know, this is a pretty good attempt to break out of the teeny bopper world and be take, start to be taken as a slightly serious artist. So there's the question then. Is this... Because what I feel about it, and I think what I what I said is, I, I feel like this is like an attempt to, yes. like I, I feel like this, the sound of this record and the sound of this song is pretty kind of calculated and deliberate. Like it's not necessarily I want to make a record like this. It's you should or you need to make a record that sounds like this. Uh, it's, it's quite self conscious that it's this is much more considered. 
mm. approach I'm making to the songs I'm doing. I don't know that it's necessarily calculated is maybe not the, the word I would yeah, use. Yeah, but, maybe that sounds just sinister, but... Yeah. Well, I think she made a deliberate choice not to work with Max Martin and those sort of pop producers again. Yeah, well, sort of... she'd originally worked with Stock Eight and Waterman. Yeah. Oh, was it Stock Eight? Sorry, Stock Eight and Waterman. Ones. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And, like, so I guess... And then she started working with sort of Indian underground producers and this is what happens, which is exactly what Madonna does. It's the thing with every Madonna album where she just goes and just, like goes into the indie world and mines the hottest DJs and then comes back up with a number one album and then yeah. goes back underground again. Like, she did that with William Albert and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, it's kind of her going down that road. The interesting thing is the producers who did this um, were called Brothers in Rhythm and the only other sort of big credits they have is Take That. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so it's not like she found some indie producer and and you know, got them to do that kind of thing. It was obviously something that she wanted to do or that she was sort of pushing at some level. So, yeah, I, I don't feel like it's calculated in the same way that Casey does. Okay. Um, I think the thing about this song that we're not hearing now because it's sort of a something that's taken for granted now is I remember the sort of thing about Kylie at the time was that she was like an actress who could sort of sing but she was mostly cute. And her vocal performance on this song is great. It, like, it's it a really good, yeah. excellent vocal performance. And um, I think the thing about this song at the time that I remember is, like, we listened to the vocal performance, we're like, wow, she can sing. Mm. Whereas before she was just kind of doing the, Puppet. you know, anybody could sing over a Stock Aitman and Waterman production and you don't have to sing well for them to be hits. Um, just Jason Donovan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not even, the performance isn't even necessarily from a technical standpoint, even though that's fine. It's just that the choices she makes with the whispering and those kinds of things which add to the tone of the song uh, are really smart. Yeah, and that's that's what I mean. Like, she's singing well from both a technical perspective, like she's hitting some pretty good notes, but she's also singing cleverly and, and singing with taste and, and style in a way that she probably hadn't quite done before because most of the other stuff she had to do, she sort of was the happy-go-lucky, just kind of belting stuff out yeah. kind of thing. Mm. She, it was, it's a good performance mm. as well, I think. That's yeah. Thing I think that the other half of what Tim Byron was saying of her previous persona is she definitely shed the cuteness. Yes. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of raunchiness going on, with within it but it's uh-huh. <laughs> yeah but it's not just raunchiness for the sake of raunchiness there's there's a purpose behind it because the song is making a particular point and the clip itself yes it's very very sexy uh but it's also eerie and creepy as well kind of mm-hmm. the peep show aspects and the double yeah. double five numbers there's something quite unsettling yeah. about it. And I really like that. I really like that she went there and this is the point. She starts making a lot of really smart choices as far as who she works with and mm. the, sh- the song she, she does. So the film clip, mm-hmm. watching it again this week, uh, the graphics in Sex Lines haven't really changed that much. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's still, like, are, are there still Sex Line graphics on late night TV? Are there, are there still Sex Lines? Oh, I mean, yeah. the internet well, surely Foxtel. killed that particular uh, <laughs> But, yeah, it just feels like, uh, I mean, I, I say it in that way, but it looks, I, I find it interesting that it hasn't dated in that sense. Yeah, it's you know? funny, isn't it? It's yeah. still like you can play some of that film clip now and they'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe the Sex Lines have 
SMS abilities as well or something. But it's like, 1902 instead of... Skype with them and yeah. stuff like that. But, uh, Probably. But, but, so oh, they still play stuff like that late at night on Max, do they? No, not necessarily on Max, but definitely on some of the... Like, you know, the Foxtel channels that have, like... Because, you know, let's face it, I used to see those ads and stuff in, like, late-night Letterman and stuff like that, right? Watching... Uh, well, not the late show, because it was ABC, but, but yeah. that time of night. And, like, that late-night comedy and stuff. And so I watch so much comedy channel. Yeah. And I record so much comedy channel, especially, like, The Daily Show and Colbert. And if I manage to record the one that airs at 1 o'clock, yeah. I'm fast-forwarding to the ads. It's all that stuff. So... <laughs> so, so what you're right. saying is that the appetising budgets of the sex industry really haven't changed too much in the yeah, past 20 no, years. no. Still that sort of uh, clip-art graphics. Mm. So... Or at least they just uh, know their market. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how much money are you going to spend lines- on that? The sex lines thing is something I find a bit sort of strange in a way because there's always that stuff about how men are meant to be visual creatures and all that kind of stuff, yet they're ringing up um, to, to talk to women. And yeah, I, exactly. I would, would have expected that would be the other way around, like but be women it, ringing up to talk yeah, to guys. But, it, but isn't that something she kind of, well, maybe exploits in the song that part of the, the come on, part of the seduction is you have someone to confide in, you have someone to talk to. That's kind of what makes it as dangerous as it is and as it comes across. <laughs> Way to be, yeah, bring it back around to the actual song. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this next song is number one for two weeks from the 15th of October, 1994. This is Boys to Men with I'll Make Love to You. Number one for two weeks in 1994. Where do we start? Tim Coyle. Hey. Um, So much unintentional hilarity in this song. (laughs) I found listening to it this week. I I think that was a case of at the time, I still had a fair bit of goodwill towards Boys to Men from End of the Road. And then this was just the same song, but worse. (laughs) Yeah. And... Yeah, uh, it, it really is so terrible, and it's simultaneously incredibly wimpy and incredibly sleazy. And yeah. it's just—it's <laughs> an amazing achievement in that regard. And uh, it, 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 
in a similar way to some of the other songs we've listened to, this was the one song I kept listening to this week <laughs> just because it was so hypnotically bad. <laughs> and, yeah, just the the overacting that we've spoken about before and the, the Shatner pulls out all the stops. Yeah, yeah it's so great, isn't And the sleazy guy in the chorus that you only pick it up in the headphones. It's just kind of... Yeah, <laughs> this is just a brilliant train wreck. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tim Byron. Yeah, I, I remember in 1994, I was 12. I hadn't really gone through puberty yet or whatever. So, like, for me, in the title, having I'll Make Love to You was just like, ooh, girl germs. <laughs> um, like, cause, yeah, you know, like, it's in the title. Like, you can't pretend it's not there. I knew what <laughs> making love meant at that point. And um, I, I was happy with my Doctor Who books in 1994. <laughs> I didn't want to know about any of that kind of stuff. Um, but that changes reasonably soon. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so for me in 94, this was just embarrassing. It was just like, oh, why? 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 And, like, yeah, listening to it now... Why can't they just get a fucking horn section? Oh, I think they got a horn section. This whole song is a horn section. Oh, yeah. It's a big horn party. You know that, that synth at the start, like just yeah. doing a sort of melody oh, line? It so wants to be like a horn section and it's not. It's just a fucking synth. I mean, fuck you, baby face. Get a fucking horn section. <laughs> Okay, Casey Atkins. So this is what I reckon we should do. Since Boys to Men just took End of the Road and copied and pasted it into a new song, what I reckon we should do is take what I said about <laughs> End of the Road on this podcast about, you know, a number of weeks ago and copy that and paste it into right now because my feelings are pretty much the same. Um yeah. So you yeah. Like it then? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so you like it then? Yeah, it's very good. Um, I, yeah, I just I, I find it, it it's so funny though, isn't it? This, this whole like I'll make love to you, like this really big strong statement. But then, uh, if I mean, if you, if you want me to, and that lyric, I will not let go till you tell me to, <laughs> is so fucking dodgy, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing powers of self-control. That's the I know. Yeah. So anyway, if you really want to know what I think about I'll this, go back a number of weeks, see what I said about End of the Road. Even <laughs> hilarious lines, my favourite, I will give you the love of your life. <laughs> Which, I don't know. Does that mean it's someone else? Yes, and I'll give him to no, I, think, I, I think he's talking about his penis size. <laughs> oh, yes, Danny? It's my dick in a box. Um, <laughs> uh, did you just say dick in a box? Do you not know that song? <laughs> It's a Lonely Island song. It's a piss take of essentially this song. It's a, it's a smooth R&B ballad with Justin Timberlake and Lonely Island. And it's like, yeah, baby, you're going to get everything you want tonight. It's going to be your, like, your birthday all over again because I got you a dick in a box. <laughs> it's just like, it's great. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's interesting because we've been doing this in chronological order. 
And I guess I just changed in between End of the Road and uh, the time of this song. Because somewhere along the line, I learned what irony was. And I learned what the lack of irony was. <laughs> and there is just something ridiculously straightforward about this song that is just so, so funny. Um, this is, to this day... Sounds nothing like sex to me. (laughs) 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 I have no idea how someone who thinks about sex thinks about this song, and I just would be scared if they did. Like, you know, imagine, like, in your wildest fantasies, you know, in a situation where you're scoring with a girl and they turn this song (laughs) on. Close the door, make a wish. Uh, like, I mean, I don't know. It's just so bad. Although, it is so funny. Like, there is almost no cover version of this song that anyone could do without it just being hilarious. <laughs> right? So, yeah. I don't know. I, R. Kelly could do it. Oh, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, would be so uh, funny. Yeah, but that, that, yeah, yeah, that would bring the, the irony situation in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Not intentionally. No, not intentionally. <laughs> and that's the oh. thing. As I said, this, this song is so unintentionally hilarious. The, the thing that kept running through my head as I was listening to it is when we talked about salt and pepper and the little aside that how many men do you know that make love? Yeah. And it's just... It's these four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these four's bags. <laughs> All I could think of was salt and pepper just rolling her eyes at these idiots. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> no shoot for you. <laughs> it is, I'm assuming, a very teenage girl view of what yeah. sex might one day be. And so, which actually makes it worse in my head. But yeah. like, it's so. That they're singing this song yeah. to 14 year old girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Which, yeah, they are. I mean, like, if you see it from the perspective of the 14-year-old girl, I mean, they are interested in sex and are very curious about it, but it also must be absolutely terrifying and all these, like, men around and guys around who want to have sex with them and are probably not going to treat them anywhere near as well as this guy and mm-hmm. or these guys. But at least they would and, be overacting um, and singing too loud and going, I don't know. <laughs> but imagine living with that overactor guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll get the car. Meet you around the front. Oh, like, oh, he's just, he's just like, it doesn't need to be that dramatic, but he's just like, yeah, everything is clenched fists. I love it. Uh, so, Boys to Men. Uh, this is for me, even as I'm assuming the biggest fan of Boys to Men. This is the, the end, end of, the road. of Boys to Men. Yeah. This is the end of the road. Yeah. But I like that one record, Coolie High Harmony. This is the from the album Two, which I didn't even buy. Uh, and then that was the end. The only other hit I knew after this was the one they did with Mariah Carey. Uh, one, one, sweet oh, one Sweet Day. Oh one Sweet Day. And, uh, <laughs> Which was and a number it. two. Oh, it was a number two. Okay, well. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that this is the last we heard of this band. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they tour recently, though? They did. There's only three of so them. So it's left. not the last we've heard of them. Yeah, Oh, I remember w- driving past the Enmore Theatre and there are all these sort of like really overdressed kind of people waiting around there and we're figuring out, as we were seeing them, like before we could see what the sign was, we're like, who's, who's playing there tonight? This is sort of a really weird audience of people about my age or slightly older who are really overdressed. That was the thing I noticed. Yeah. And That's- we look up the 
at the thing and boys to men. That's one of uh, mine and Joe's favourite games is to um, look at the queue outside the indoor theatre and try to figure out who's playing without looking at the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's great fun. Uh, was it all women? 75%. Yeah. Really? What are Dressing the dudes doing? Probably. Try to score. <laughs> but like... That's where you know, there's those like R&B dudes who like want to believe they're one of these guys and they've got uh-huh. that image about them. Yeah, I just this would be the most awkward song to ever see in concert. But the, with but, another guy around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, think, I think that's the thing with this song. It's trying to position itself as being very sensitive and oh, uh, when, yeah, it's quite manipulative. Yeah. I remember one time I had managed to get two tickets from work to see Dion Warwick. And I took Casey Atkins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was nice. We went to the opera house. I, there was a point in my life where I hadn't been to the opera house that much. We thought it was fine. Dinner and a show. Yeah, well, we sat down <laughs> in really, really nice seats. And there was an orchestra playing. We played some chords. Dion comes out and just starts singing close to you. And it was really, really <laughs> awkward <laughs> between me and Casey after that. Because everyone in front of us were just couples who leaned in together. When she, when she started singing, why do birds? And me and Casey just looked at each other and went, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I imagine seeing this song in concert would be. So, I don't know. It's a terrible song. <laughs> Our third song of tonight was number one for six weeks really? from the 29th of October 1994. It's one of the longest runs from this year, and this song is Tomorrow by Silverchair. Tomorrow by Silverchair, uh, number one in 1994. Tim Byron, what do you think? You know, the funny thing about this one is it was such a big hit. It was such a big cultural moment and everything. And I have totally no recollection of hearing this in 1994 at all. Really? Like, I just, it just missed me somehow. I wasn't listening to Triple J at the time, I guess. And so it just 
I don't know whether it was played on other stations, but I totally missed this at the time. And I think the first Silver Chara song I remember hearing was Israel's Son, probably about a year later when I did start listening to Triple J. Right. And so for me, Tomorrow is like one of those boats that I just totally missed. I started hearing it a year and a half later, I guess, when Triple J were playing it. And um, yeah, so I missed it at the time and I missed that moment. So for me now, it's just another 90s alt rock song. doesn't mean that much mm. to me. It's, it's competent. It's pretty good at doing what it does. I like that sort of jangly guitar bit that sort of sounds a bit Led Zeppelin-y. Um, the lyrics are about as bad as Daniel Johns' lyrics always are. And um, that's about it. What do you think, Tim Coyle? <laughs> um, I, I must have been at a funny age with a lot of grunge because I missed that initial blast with Nirvana. And by the time I got to high school, um, grunge had become the jocks style of music. Mm. And this came out and it's meant to be this defining moment in Australian music or for young, supposedly alternative people. I don't get that. I didn't get that at the time. And, yeah, I really didn't like this song because of the people who liked it more than anything. And yeah. it was a style of music I wasn't connecting with at the time. I've warmed to it, having listened to it this week. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty decent. I really like the guitar tone within the song. Uh, and the drumming's really great, and I like the drum sound in it. Uh, it's it's such a Nirvana cop that it beggars belief. It, even right down to the the very bluesy inflections. I know Casey and I talk about this all the time that Kurt Cobain had that oh, fixation yeah. with the old blues men, but Daniel Johns is doing that here, and you know, he doesn't do it too badly. And yeah. But, look, it's as far as this style of music is concerned, it's, it's better than Creed, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not better than most other things in this style of music. But it's, it's, all, it, it's decent. I, I found it all right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that glowing review. Silver chair, decent, better than Creed. <laughs> yeah, I see that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had a really funny relationship with with Silverchair. Um, this song, I think, I really liked when it came out. Um, no, I know I, I really liked it when it was a when it was a single, when it was a hit. Um, and there were a couple of things like there was this the Tomorrow EP. I think was actually the um, yes, with the light on the it. single, yeah. And then the song itself was re-recorded, or at least bits of it were redone for the Frog Stomp album. Um, and and I. I- I think that might be what Tim Byron knows because that was re-released as a single about a year later. Especially was Smart re-released as a single? Well, it was in the US and they did that new film clip with the pink face boy. Yes. And so, I couldn't find yeah. that one today. I didn't look that hard, but I only saw the original. So the, the version I listened to on audio was the Frog Stump version and the, the video clip version I saw was the kind of the EP version. And um, I think actually somewhere between the two, between um, – the EP version of Tomorrow and then re-recording it for Frog Stomp is when my sort of opinion on Silver Chair changed quite dramatically. Um, but at this stage, um, I, I thought it was great. It was kind of kind of where I was, but um, I don't know. For me, I, I started seeing through Silver Chair pretty quickly, so I can't listen to them particularly happy on any level these days. <laughs> That's how I felt about it this week. 
Uh, yeah, I hated this song. Yeah, I hated this song when it came out. Uh, there were it was the most awful people in school who did like it. Mm. There was one. This was around the time I guess I would have started picking up the guitar, and in high school, and there was another band in high school that we used to have to fight all the time to get access to the music room at recess and lunch, and they loved Silverchair. Yeah, and they would just keep playing Silverchair songs, and I would want to play, you know. Crowded house, yeah, or right. you know, so it's just, it was just so bad, and I just have so many memories of sitting in recess waiting for this band to have their turn, and they would do this song over and over, and there's nothing about it that I connected with when I was a kid, you know, nothing lyrically, nothing sonically, and to didn't this, connect with the lyrics to this song. Oh well, the water that was quite hard to drink sometimes. Yeah, yeah. and like, <laughs> and what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah, well, you know, there's it's always a question, isn't it? Um, look, and then so it set me on a course, and yeah, Silverchair around this time most definitely were the enemy mm. for me, and so and oh, they just looked terrible, and they were. Just yeah, I don't know. There was nothing about it that meant much to me. Oh, were, um, I remember the term that was going around at the time, which was Nirvana's in pajamas. Which I thought, oh. yeah, pretty perfect. It's good, and the Nirvana thing is so inescapable. And yeah. the thing for me is, it's so studied mm. that, as I said, everything down to the very bluesy inflections in the guitar and the voice are just. Even that, that's See, secondhand. Like, it is, not no definitely. blues in this. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not saying that. They've just, he listened to Nevermind and heard those kinds of inflections in Cobain's playing See, and I singing. disagree and with that entirely almost. Really? Um, to me, I was listening to this today. <laughs> oh, which bit do you agree with? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's entirely almost. There's a bit of Nirvana in there. But to me, it's much more Soundgarden. I totally hear Soundgarden in the kind of riff, in the kind of vocals. And, I mean, they have that kind of bluesy thing in there as well. But, mm-hmm. yeah, to me it's more like Soundgarden or sort of early Pearl Jam or something like that. But, you know, the stuff that's more Black Sabbath-y in Led zeppelin in its influences than Nirvana, who had sort of more punkish kind of influences. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't a good rip-off Nirvana. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. If Nirvana... He just looked like Kurt Cobain. Yeah, he just yeah, got mum to give him that did. haircut. And, well, in, and in the in the original Tomorrow film clip, and this is the other thing that's that's really laboured, the original Tomorrow film clip, which to his credit is not his fault, but they make, they try so hard to make the angles and the way his hair falls over his face and all of that is just so fucking deliberate. And look, the, the one thing to say in their defence is that they were, what, 14, 15, when that original Tomorrow EP came out? I don't expect them to be, you know, the most original thing in the world either. No. <laughs> Look, okay, well, then let's talk about this. They were famous, I think, for two reasons. One, Kurt Cobain died, and so there was a gap, right? Mm. He died in April of that year. We're sitting in October now. And two, it's Triple J. Yeah, one, no, okay. The one yeah. what was unearthed. Yeah. And yeah. they had a commitment to release an EP, record the band, the song connected, they got signed to Sony, and the rest is history. So, yeah, I, I agree with Danny. Triple J and A&R people all over the country were just basically, we need an Australian Nirvana. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Silverchair was exactly what they, they needed. That record just, <laughs> as much as I hate that record, and as much as this is around the time where I was 
discovering guitar bands, but also quickly discerning what guitar bands I didn't didn't, didn't yeah. like. This definitely mm. sort of hard f- fell into the bucket of things I didn't like because I don't know. There was none of the fun and and humor or intelligence that I loved in music, even by this point. It's just such a steamroller and it's so obvious and I kind of know like even then I had this feeling of I knew where this song was going to go by the end of it yeah and yeah it just and and it happened with the other songs on this album as well we mentioned Israel Sun and uh, Pure Massacre Pure Massacre yeah and you just sort of go what do you know about massacres buddy <laughs> like uh, I guess the other thing I want to say about this era of Silver Chair at least is that at least I feel like Daniel Jones is probably close to being as embarrassed by this as everyone else. Yeah, I, mean, I guess. I'm not sure. I've never seen Silver Chair in concert. Uh, imagine if they do play this song live. It is out of nostalgia rather than feeling. I don't think they do play it anymore. I think oh. that they I read uh, a thing a while ago where um, there was a point at which they he might like play that opening riff. Um, and they might get like half of a verse in, and they and then they'd stop it and go into something else. Like it was that kind of thing that they might they might sort of hint to it from time to time. But it was yeah, they it, it was out of their set um, long ago officially. Well, if only that happens on the radio as well when this song comes on. Um. <laughs> See, when I listened to um, Israel's Son and when I first sort of heard that, I really liked that song. Really, I, 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 I didn't yeah, mind. Yeah, I like the either. riff. Yeah, good it's, riff in. It's, it's not bad. And I don't mind a bit of a steamroller every so often. Um, sometimes you need that kind of feeling of like, you know, the drums going big and, the, you know, the dun, 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 yeah. that kind of big riff. You know, drop D, I'm sure it's drop D. Is it drop oh, D, Casey? Everything's drop D. Oh. From like <laughs> and that was, I mean, that was the thing that started to really give me the shits about Silverchair as time went on. And, and the thing that really started giving me the shits is that um, I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea of drop D tuning, which if, you did listen. I don't know what that means. I'll put up an explanation on the blog. But um, what shat me about Silverchair is that, like, it's fine if you're playing drop D tuning. You've got to use the other strings as well. <laughs> Our next song was number one for just one week in December of 1994. This is Cheryl Crow with All I Want to Do. This ain't no disco. It ain't no country club either.
so that was All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow, number one for just one week on the 10th of December, 1994, and it seems to be a song that is way more famous than a one-hit, one-week number one, but we'll see how we all feel about it. Casey Atkins, why don't you start? Love it. Loved it then, love it now. Um, I, I mean, we'll talk, we'll talk about Sheryl Crow in general, but, um, I, yeah, I really like Sheryl Crow and this was my introduction to Sheryl Crow. Um, I just enjoyed the vibe of this song and I think that the vibe of this song is probably more than the song itself. Like Mm. it's, it's, it's a little bit, ra- I mean, it's not a little bit rambling, it's a lot rambling, um, but that's its charm and it's just got its charm in, in the sound and the way the instruments play together and um, and, I, and I appreciate it back then and I used to play it in my old band. Um, oh, really? Yeah, the band that we had, um, we had a girl um, that sang and, you know, it was the band that we played like What's Up by Four Nine Blondes and, and stuff and then we played this as well. And yeah, it was great fun, and, uh, and I really enjoyed listening to it this week. And in saying that, it has probably hasn't been that long since I've heard it, really. Um, and and yeah, I, I like it a lot. I think it's great. I just really enjoy it. Tim Byron, yeah, I liked it at the time. It was this great song that had a nice groove, and um, I think I have this memory of not really knowing what she was singing when she sang Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> I didn't know what that was because I didn't know what Santa Monica Boulevard oh, right. was. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it now. And, um, but I remember like being curious as to what it was like, and I liked it. I liked the sort of groove of it. It had a really good groove. Mm-hmm. And I remember being sort of disappointed that other Sheryl Crow songs didn't have that groove. They were kind of like sort of, you know, sad singer songwriter stuff, mostly like strong enough and mm. yeah, d- didn't quite have that thing in the same way that I was disappointed with Alanis, um, that the rest <laughs> of it didn't sound like you ought to know. Yeah. So I liked that then. And now listen to it. Still pretty good. Uh, the band would be happy with that groove. It's a really good groove. The slide guitar and it's really nice. Yeah. Um, the, the the way that she sort of delivers those lyrics, which she didn't write, but would come from a poem, like is really clever. Listening to the way that she does it, it really works in a clever way, and I, I give her props for that. And, yeah, it's pretty awesome. How much of the lyrics is the poem? I didn't look up the poem. All of it. All of it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? So it's, Except the chorus or even based- the chorus? The very last line in the poem, because I looked at it today, is um, all I want to do is have all we want to do is have some fun, right? And oh, that changes made, how I feel about that. I song forget if there's a a thing about Santa Monica Boulevard in it. There probably is, but it's the verses are like, like uh, word for word, right? Okay, very interesting. Tim Clark. yeah, um, I found it a a little bit of an odd one, not as enthusiastic about it as, as the other guys. Uh, the groove thing Tim Barrett mentioned is, is pretty interesting in so far. Uh, it, that this is, uh, it was, it's very Steve Miller band meets this fair kind of thing going on. What could possibly go wrong there? <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with it. Um, yeah, for me, it's the very... It's it's loose loose and a bit casual, and some days when I listen to it, I will like it. Some days when I listen to it, that just I've got to get it off very quickly, um, off the off the iPhone very quickly because yeah, I'm just not in the kind of mood for this kind of thing. Um, I I think it's trying to be it's a satire of that slacker LA party girl 
kind of thing. And but maybe it's not. <laughs> but maybe it is. <laughs> but maybe it is. In which case, yeah, it's it's much cleverer than than it might otherwise might otherwise be. And the thing I always find a bit amusing is that when I was going to pubs in uni, when this would come on a jukebox and you'd hear this squeal go up from throughout the bar. And all of a sudden, girls would emerge on the dance floor and would be doing what my sister reliably informs me is the white girl dance, which is just kind of (laughs) one arm held aloft in the air with the palm open with a lot of shuffling and nodding of the head and mouthing of the words going on. And the thing is, when I listen to this song, it's such a burnt out, listless kind of song the lyrics are just there's burnout there it's just all i want to do is have some fun because i'm sitting in this bar considering fucking a guy who is ugly to me (laughs) (laughs) drinking beers at midday and yeah just being completely detached from everything and looking down at on people in a car wash yeah it's definitely has that i want to say Cohen brothers sort of mm. vibe about it. You know, Big Lebowski sort of a bit wasted sort of. Mm. And look, for me, the big thing in the song is LA. Mm. It is so, it is one of the greatest Los Angeles songs ever for me. And there are so many. Yeah, but <laughs> the, the, not just the direct references to Santa Monica Boulevard, but something about that vibe. You can tell the story maybe about some overdressed wanker who's a bit of an urban cowboy kind of guy or something like that. I'm sure he's Bill, Billy McBuddy. And then that's that, that whole juxtaposition between those guys and then the band and then the guys in the suits and record stores and all that sort of stuff. It's such a great kaleidoscopic view of LA and it's just, yeah, it's one of the greatest LA songs and it's one of my favourite songs. I love this song to death. Mm. Uh, the band is fantastic. I love mm. the band, Tuesday Night Music Club. Uh, and it does sound like the band in capital letters. Yes, it does sound like the band. It does, yeah. And again, something very West Coast about what they do. And yeah, I love it. And it is the, yeah, like, I mean, if she had no other career, this would still be a great song. And it, yeah, it could have been just a great one. He wanted that we'd still all remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's musically really interesting. As well, I find, I don't know, I've never tried to play it on guitar or anything like that, but I find it's it... not a lot to it, but it all works. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing yeah. about it. Yeah. And, and there's a thing that I, I call, there might have been other people who did it before, but I call Lou Reedness. That sort of singing, yeah. smoking. It's yeah. uh, it's a great song to walk to. Just kind of shambling your way through. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I might call it Mark Knopfler, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where you come from, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, both Knopfler. Mark Knopfler and Lou Reed got it from Bob Dylan. Oh, fair so. enough, yeah. Yeah, and, both, and all three of those guys kind and of... The, and there you, and the, and the, and you have it, folks. Mark Knopfler and Lou Reed mentioned in the same sentence. That's <laughs> <laughs> <At> long last. <laughs> Nuts and gum. <laughs> uh, and the other thing for me is, uh, it's a, it's a reappearance of our good mate. Sorry, everybody. Tim Collano, I just done a sidebar conversation. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't mind them. Uh, do you guys know the story of the Tuesday Night Music Club? Um, Explain it to us, Danny, I, I, because like, there will be people who are listening who don't. I do vaguely, but you, you go. Yeah, it's yeah. basically a bunch of. 
I don't think they've ever really said it, but I look at it and I go, basically a bunch of found musicians, mm. producers, and people mm. hanging around LA who used to go to this club every night, Tuesday, and just write songs and play music. And one of them was Cheryl Crow. And when she got signed, she turned around to these guys and went, can I use these songs and be the band? And it actually turned into lawsuits in the very end. I oh, did it. Because everyone was mm. like, well, we wrote it, but we're all sitting in a room and who wrote what and stuff like that. Um, but there's a couple of guys in, in that band who are very interesting. One's Bill Bottrell, who right. we've actually talked about him before. He was the producer of Black or White okay, and works with Madonna and stuff like that. And also David Bearwald, who was in a band called David and David in, in the in the 80s, a nice little power pop band. And, yeah, he's just around. He does a lot of film scores and, and things now and still writes sort of it's like a Marshall Crenshaw kind of guy, just guys around, uh, really good pop songwriter, and he's sort of part of this world. And kind of part of me is really happy that this song, I'm hoping, made them all quite a bit of money, and maybe sort of maybe bought an apartment for all of them because they're mm. just those struggling musos around LA. Yeah, and one of the keyboard player in that group, a guy called Kevin Gilbert. Yeah, yeah he's the um, other guy. The the other guy. Um, he's interesting because he was um, the the story with him was that he was Cheryl Crow's partner and um, the lawsuits happened when he and Cheryl Crow broke up and um, so he left the band and things got acrimonious and he was like, well, you didn't write those songs, we wrote those songs, blah, 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 blah. And um, the interesting thing about him that links Cheryl Crow with Kylie Minogue oh. is that in 1996, Kevin Gilbert uh, died as a result of autoerotic asphyxiation. Yes. Oh. That's yes. a tenuous link, but yeah, I'll, it's a tenuous it link, <laughs> yeah. and not extremely pleasant link. And yes, yeah. he did he did die shortly after those lawsuits and stuff like that. So it was kind of there's something about the Tuesday Night Music Club that I still have like a fantasy for. And I there was a time where I lived near a pub that had an open mic night that I used to just go and all those musicians and and I wrote an album out of those songs. And part of me sometimes thinks like I pilfered lyrics and stories from those people and and their lives to write these songs and I just kind you, of You were like, trying to recreate this album. But that was so in my you, head. You, you went to the open mic night dressed as Cheryl Crow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Bill or Billy Mack or Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah. All you wanted to do was have some fun, Danny. Exactly. And But, like, there is something really sort of quite seductive about that fantasy for me. It always stuck with me. These sort of bunch of people sitting around creating music and whether maybe it's kind of sort of how much they played it up for the press at the time and things like that. But it definitely, there's something, it's quite a place of honesty that this album comes from that I still really quite enjoy, which, you know, after this, she became a millionaire, I'm sure, and worked with big name producers and overdubbed and pro-tooled everything to death and it hasn't really hit me as much as this album, but there's something about this album that I just love. So yeah. she collaborated with Prince. Oh, that's right. Yes, tell that yeah. story. Uh, he did a cover of Every Day is a Winding Road. Oh, yeah. On his 1999 album, I forget if it's Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic or yeah. Into the Joy Fantastic, and um, and she sang on another song. But, like, she, her background was that she was uh, in the 80s. Uh, she was, like, the session singer in L.A. Mm-hmm. So she sang on stuff by, like, Don Henley, and she um, did backing vocals going on tour with Michael Jackson. And I remember that being a big thing at the time, that this girl who was doing this sort of rootsy stuff how could she possibly have worked with Michael Jackson as well? How does that work? Mm. That must be where she met Bill Bottrell, right? Yeah, indeed. I'm pretty yeah. sure it must have been. So um, so she had this sort of background as a session singer kind of person, and um, but she was obviously failed and um, by the point that 
Tuesday Night Music Club came out. Mm-hmm. Um, she had like an unreleased sort of big name kind of big produced album that came was going to come out in 92, but she cancelled it or the record company cancelled it. There was sort of like an Amy Grant kind of thing. And I think after that happened, that's when the Tuesday Night Music Club stuff happened because she was like, oh, my career's over. I'm just going to have some fun. Mm. That's the story of all those guys. And then the other thing is that this album looked like it was going to be a failure on release. The first single did nothing, yeah. which was Leaving Las Vegas. And oh, was it the first yeah. single? Yeah, and then this, album, this single was almost put out as an afterthought. It was one of those things that radio picked up on before they made a film clip. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's such a great, you know, I just, not just for Sheryl Crow, like I think of David Bearwall just going, oh, well, had, an, had a career, kind of over now, probably have kids, just sitting around making music and, oh, someone just got a kind of an album deal, let's put our, our songs together, and it, they had a hit. The film clip's yeah. also, I mean, it's not a great film clip, but it's interesting, the demeanour of everyone within it, because she performs it rolling her eyes at times, which probably bears out the, the satirical thing that I was mm. wondering if it was there. There's Watching a, the film clip, it definitely is. There's a knowing wink that the whole song is, not mm. there's something about it, and it's almost, it's so different that they almost kind of think that it, you know, and they ripped off a poem and all that sort of stuff. They must, mm. there's just, just an unambitious thing to it. Yeah. It's a very slacker kind yeah. of thing, the the shuffling rhythm and, the, and yeah, also just the, the disdain for everyone else that, yeah, mm. it's it's difficult to to sing that kind of song unless you're Billy Joel and take that kind <laughs> of disdain for everyone seriously. <laughs> So, Danny, you were saying that, well, you don't necessarily have much for Cheryl Crow post this point because of the sound of it or, or whatever. So, yeah. you don't really like her anymore? Or? No, I mean, I don't. I didn't really follow her after that. I mean, mm. Strong Enough was a huge single in Australia, and so I remember that, and that was kind of sappy but romantic and okay. And Every Day is a Winding Road, which I think we've mentioned was fine, and If It Makes You Happy, I remember that song quite clearly. Great song. Yeah, and pretty good, <laughs> good rock song, I guess. And But... Not enough to make me buy the album. Yeah. And mm. then she put out another, I'm guessing, 84 albums since that I haven't heard. <laughs> yeah. And done numerous yeah. tours. And... She's just um, had a reinvention as a country artist, apparently. Oh, really? Okay. Like yeah. Darius Rucker. And, uh... Indeed. <laughs> Look, oh, that's me. <laughs> <Damn. laughs> <laughs> I don't do, think it is, really. Don't do that to Cheryl Crow. See, now, this is the thing. I, I have... I've never lost goodwill for Sheryl Crow. I've just always really liked Sheryl Crow. I just think she's got an incredible voice and I think it's – there's just just something about her voice that I really react well to and I've always always liked it and I've never um, kind of – you know, I haven't liked all of the songs and I haven't necessarily liked all of the directions that she's gone over the course of those 84 albums of which you speak, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is probably not that far from the truth. But there's just always something with Cheryl Crow that, like, every couple of years I'll hear something that I haven't heard before or something new and I'll just go, up oh, that's Cheryl Crow and that's why I like Cheryl Crow and she's got a fucking great voice and it sounds awesome. For, for an artist who, as Danny explains, probably felt as though... That was it. Yeah. Before releasing this album, that she had no career, that this was just kind of a thing she was doing for Fiarks. Yeah. She's never really gone away no. after this. She's stayed pretty prominent. There's songs have come out frequently, as, as yeah. we've alluded to. 
Uh, Lance Armstrong was only strong enough to be her man through the use of performance in heart. On to our last song of the evening. This song was number one for eight weeks all up, three weeks in 1994, and then for another five weeks at the start of 1995. This is Zombie by the Cranberries. by the Cranberries, number one for eight weeks throughout 1994 and 1995. And I'm going to start with this one because the Cranberries at this time was possibly my favourite band. Really? I had both those albums and I listened to them so much. I just don't know why. I just... I was in love with Dolores, but I was probably in love with all women at this point. And (laughs) And this was... Something about northern English, like northern United Kingdom music started here. It was so romantic and great. And the one song I didn't like, the one song that stuck out like a sore thumb next to No Need to Argue and Linger and all that stuff was Zombie. (laughs) The one song that sounded like the Smashing Pumpkins. (laughs) It's so dated that the only real distortion on their first two records this is the band that did Dreams. They did Linger. Yeah. They did, like, you know, Ode to My Family. Uh, this was an aberration on the record, which I didn't hate terribly, but it wasn't why I liked the Cranberries. And, yeah, it was something – it was a very strange song for me. So back in the day, I listened to this song a lot because I didn't skip it on the CD. Uh, listening to it now, God, it hasn't dated well, and it just mm. sounds like a – like. I can totally understand other people thinking that this is a one-hit wonder band with a minor grunge hit Mm. uh, and left it at that because if this was the song that I knew of, I would feel the same. Tim Byron, what about you? Well, for me, my mum is from Northern Ireland 
And so by the time this had come out, I'd been to Northern Ireland twice. And this is a song about the Troubles. So the Troubles was what they called um, the whole Civil War-ish kind of thing happening between the North and the South in Ireland. And I was very aware of that because um, my mum would, you know, when things were on TV about that, she was sort of scared that people she know died, which is a possibility and all that kind of stuff. When I went to Northern Ireland in um, 1991, I have a distinct memory of watching my grandfather march as an Orangeman. And for those who don't know what that means, um, the Orangemen were the Protestants in uh, Northern Ireland who would march every every year or so to commemorate them coming over and stealing the land from the actual Celtic Irish who were Catholics. Uh, and, um, yeah, I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I remember seeing it. And so I remember sort of always just kind of being a bit weird, like when we went over there, maybe there would be a bomb or something. So, yeah, I loved Zombie. Um, I knew what it was about and I was um, big into it. I also loved the Smashing Pumpkins, so the I didn't realise it at the time uh, because I didn't like the Smashing Pumpkins quite yet, I don't think, but um, I really did love Zombie. And so I remember going busking in Parramatta because I did that at the time because that was the kind of thing my dad really, really pushed because he was a pushy stage dad or wanted to be. And um, so we, we went busking in Parramatta, me and my brother, and it might have been the time that Daryl Braithwaite came and watched us for about five or ten minutes, and <laughs> my dad keeps telling me. Nice. Um, even, even now, he still tells me about that time we went busking and Daryl Braithwaite came and watched for five or ten minutes. Um, so we made 30 or $40 or so, and out of the proceeds of that, uh, I bought No Need to Argue, the, um, the album that this is from, and gave it to my mum as a Christmas present. Uh, that was really one of the things that I wanted for me, but I could sort of, she liked Irish music, it was Irish, so I could say, I got it for you, Mum, but I listened to it a lot. <laughs> yes, but did you get the one with the bonus disc initially, and then did you buy the reissue with the bonus disc that came out a couple of years ago? <sighs> no. no <laughs> I was 12. <laughs> so my family are Irish Catholics. <laughs> um, the... Very much the other side of the divide <laughs> from Tim Byron's uh, background. But, and, but, uh, <laughs> well, that's not even that. But, um, yeah, quite proud Irish Catholics and staunch Republicans um, in in that context. And, yeah, I, I'd been very interested in my family history at this point and had started reading quite a bit about the Troubles in Ireland and the Easter Uprising, which is mentioned in this song. And this song was actually written by the Cranberries when they were on tour in England and there was a bombing um, whilst they were over there um, in, in England, which killed two young boys. And, yeah, this is effectively their response to, as, as people from the Republic of Ireland, to the ongoing uh, IRA campaign, which most people who lived in the Republic had tried and tried and tried to wash their hands off. And this song is trying to, well, both, one, persuade those who were still carrying these things out to stop, but also just washing their hands of this. There's, there was a big... I think a perception of Irish people in the UK during the 80s and even early 90s that whoever had an Irish accent was a terrorist. Mm. And obviously for most people who are, who are Irish in the UK, and that's a lot of people, um, that was quite an affront. And I think this song has been mischaracterized a bit that people 
think it's solely addressed towards the IRA or Republicans within within Ireland. It's addressed to both sides. Mm. Uh, the IRA yeah. doesn't have tanks. So when she's talking about mm. their tanks and their bombs, it's both sides. And both and when the, she repeats their bombs and their bombs, yeah, like she's exactly. referring to both sides. Yeah, and she's saying both the English and the Irish have just these preconceptions of one another and what their motives are. Uh, that is counterproductive. That's what she's saying. I really got into it at the time. It hasn't dated that well, as Danny says. It's definitely got that try to release a grunge single thing, although I think part of the content of this song is such an angry, despairing song that the loud wall of guitars thing suited that. So, Hmm. yeah, it was a little bit of of an anomaly within their catalogue, but I think just, yeah, the, the passion behind what Dolores was trying to convey meant that this was the approach that they took. Um, so yeah, I, I, ca- I can't hate it at all. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's not too bad. And yeah, the, the message is, I think along with Tim Byron, it's something that's pretty close to, to my family history. So yeah, I can't really separate it from that. <laughs> Casey. Yeah. I had no idea about any of that stuff <laughs> 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 at the time, <laughs> like, especially, you know, um, and I guess similar to Danny, I was when I heard this song and then heard that it was the Cranberries, I was like, what, the Linga guys? <laughs> <laughs> this is from the Linga people? Really? Um, so I was a bit surprised by it at the time. It's not to say that I didn't like it, because I think I did. Um, it's it's very forceful and it's very um, uh, the uh, it's just just so much conviction in all aspects of it, like in her voice and in the way the band plays and in everything. Um, and and I actually think I, I did quite like it at the time. I also remember when I listened to it this week, I didn't remember it until I listened to it this week, but that little, you know, that guitar bit, um, that... I remembered learning that. Um, when I listened to it this week, I was like, oh, yeah, I learned how to play that because I just... There was just something about it that's just so simple but but awesome. Like, it, it's a really, really great, great thing. And I looked up a live version of, um, of them doing it, I think, relatively recently, and she's the one who plays it on guitar, not the, not the other Oh, one. really? Yeah. And cool. it, was, it was really cool. Um, so yeah, listening to it this week, it just kind of made me remember that it just kind of made me remember all of what I've just said, how it just sort of surprised me when it came out, yet I still liked it. I guess it's dated a little bit, but it hasn't dated any more than Tomorrow by Silverchair. It's a much better song And it's a much better song than Tomorrow by Silverchair. And yeah. Oh, look, it's definitely a powerful song. And yeah, when I said it sort of stuck out, stood out from the album, yeah, I guess, I don't know, like... I. Tim Byron bought it, but I guess, I don't know if you handed it straight to your mother. I didn't know if you got a chance to listen to the album before. Yeah, for me, it does stand out because I used to listen to this album every day. <laughs> like, every day. And so, and the first one is what everybody else is doing, so why can't we? And it's so strange. It's, like, really, I, I discovered something. And Frente led to this. Mm, I can see that. And then, mm, for me, yeah. to discover everything that I loved about the women's point of view in music. 
mm. uh, which I you know you, there'd be Beth Orton soon and all these sort of things. And um, yeah, I just fell in love with the girl that's in these songs. And Zombie just didn't fit that narrative for me. So yeah, it just is a song that doesn't connect with me that well. And you mentioned Linger. I mean, do we we all remember that song? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, oh, that's possibly my favorite Cranberry song still to this day. That 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 tight harmony all the way through that. I remember first hear. I remember first hearing that. Going, that is great. Yes. Yeah, yeah and, uh, I find it. It's an oddly polarizing song these days. You either adore it, and I adore it, yeah. or you loathe it with a passion and. Linga, you mean? Or? Yeah, Linga. Yeah, Linga, I'm all right with it. I actually... Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 totally discredited I like it well enough, but I don't love it or hate it. Oh, I, I love so, it yeah. to death. Right. It is just, yeah, and... God, I have to say, like, everything I knew about girls for the next 10 years I might learn from this album <laughs> and how they feel about... Like, there's you a thought all women were Irish, uh, angry Irish. Uh. <laughs> no, like I said, I blocked that part of it yeah, out, right. and uh, <laughs> to my detriment. Um, look, yeah, there's a, there's a there's a song called "Dreaming My Dreams" that's on this on this record. Yeah, they need to argue. That was just, a single, I think. Was it a single? Oh, it's just yeah. the most beautiful romantic thing, and uh, no need to argue the song itself. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm just listing songs now, but those albums, if. If you like good female, like it's like the Sundays, or yeah, very yeah. much. It's like if you like good jangly English pop with really sweet, interesting female lyrics and stuff like that. With which really which great album voice. was "Miss You When You're Gone"? On that was the one after, yeah, which is great. Band. But that's that's I hated that album. <laughs> <laughs> As a fan, that was Salvation, mm. and um, yeah, the one with the much more aggressive. Um, yeah, I mean this song aside, yeah. um, Zombie aside. I think they pursued that direction yes. a little more. Yeah. And it was, it was conce- quite successful for them. Mm. A concept album about death. And it mm. also has a very strange nice. thing that it has a yellow jewel case. Mm. No, and, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> and let's say if you broke that jewel case, you couldn't get a replacement. <laughs> so, yeah, that really bugs me. Yeah, that bugs me. But you could happens. probably buy the album secondhand for about a dollar now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so finally, but, in in a, in a clear plastic jewel case. Oh no, salvation! Like, they've probably still got it uh, down at Sanity at Marathon Electro, right <laughs> next to <laughs> Crash <laughs> Test Dummies. It'll be Crash literally right <laughs> next to it. Here will be Crash <laughs> Test Dummies. It'll be right there. <laughs> That brings us to the end of another podcast, and that brings us to the end of 1994, which means our next show will be one of our fantastic Choose Your Own Adventure shows. Uh And I'm sure by this Mm. point you can get on the blog and talk about what your favourite 1994 songs are and give us a hand in choosing our ones. And, hey, if you want to, you can have a guess on what we will choose as well. But before we sign off, as usual, we will go through the songs that we talked about tonight and try to pick a favourite out of the lot to recap. The songs that we talked about tonight were Kylie Minogue's Confide in Me, Boys to Men, I'll Make Love to You, Silver Chair with Tomorrow, Cheryl Crow, All I Want to Do, The Cranberries, Zombie. I've got a feeling what everyone's going to pick, but let's see how we go around the room. Tim Coyle. Uh, Confide in Me was my favourite this week. Okay. Casey Atkins. Cheryl Crow, All I Want to Do. Tim Byron. Cheryl Crow. Same with me, All I Want to Do. Such a fantastic song. Uh, so that's it's not unanimous, but it's on your show, Crow. Casey Atkins, you want to let people know where they can find us on the internet? Absolutely, you can find us uh, at 
or on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Tumblr. And you can email us at Gmail. We are 90% hits in all instances with percent spelled out in words. And we post a whole lot of stuff on the Tumblr. We post, uh, you know, other singles by the artists and we write things about the songs that we picked. Um, we go into more detail about what we think about it. So you'll probably get me and Tim talking way more about zombie and the uh, Irish <laughs> troubles and what they mean, even though we've already talked about it for about 30 minutes in the podcast and most of that will be cut. Uh, so we post about those. We also post the number twos of the time and, um, you know, post things. It's, it's mostly Tim Coyle and E, but Casey and Daniel occasionally say a f- few things in the blog and um, lots of people comment. You can comment and um, we read the comments and enjoy the comments and thanks for commenting people like Robert Atkins who's po- commented a couple of times. <laughs> um, so, yeah, cheers. Danny, tell us about iTunes. Uh, but, sorry, Casey, you're right. We should put a little banner for number twos of just a fruit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with, with Michael Bolton's head. And, yeah, just, just echoing Tim Byron's sentiments that, yeah, leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes as well. It does help us to be found there. Uh, and, yeah, it's we read all the comments and we love uh, the feedback. And we're going to start... Maybe even reading some of that out. Yeah, and we still need a sign-off because if we don't get a sign-off soon, I am going to sign off with, remember, everything we do, we do this for you. Yeah, we need a better one than that. So you didn't like Can't Get It Out of My Head? Not really. No. That one's pretty good. It's a nice little pop song. Yeah. that I think it's that, that album or Light Years Afterwards has the gayest song I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> which is called Your Disco Needs You. Do you know that song? <laughs> it just starts with a whole bunch of men saying, Your Disco, Your Disco, Your Disco Needs You. And Are then, you sure that that's gayer than Go West by the Pet Shop Boys? Oh, it's so much gayer. Well, we will put it on the blog and next to each other by Go West and you people can decide which song <laughs> is more. Like, it is an anthem. Guys, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>